Thanks for joining us on the Hope Podcast. Hope Community Church exists to love people where they are and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. By pursuing this relationship together, we can change the world. We have multiple locations, including an online service found at gethope.tv. If you're not from the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina or near our Agape campus in Haiti, we'd still love to have you be part of what Hope is up to through our online services. If you do live in our physical area, go to our website at gethope.net to check out where our campuses are located and our service times. We are so glad you stopped by. Please like and share this with friends and family. We'll see you soon. Isn't that a cool video? You know, one of our staff actually drew every one of those frames by hand. You know, and he's actually here, so let him know how much we appreciate the talent that God has given to people and how they use it for the kingdom. Now, I know what you're waiting for. School starts Monday. You're wanting to know, are we going to have these virtual learning centers open? We told you lots of bureaucracy, lots of red tape. And I would love to tell you that we're going to be able to open on Monday. We are not. We are still moving toward a goal of opening right now. We have a a projected date of, uh, of August 30th. Okay, August 30th. Here's the problem. Well, that's good. That's good news. Here's the problem. We may have to shut them down by September the 15th. Now, let me tell you why. Uh, and this is where I need you to pray. The Department of, uh, of Health and Human Services <clears throat> put something in place that from April 15th to September 15th, for churches that want to have vacation Bible schools and camp during that time of the year, they are allowed to have children in their building for four hours, but not one minute more, actually three hours and 59 minutes. Okay. And it's so that like we can have vacation Bible school and things like that. If you want to have them in the summer, however, they assume in September, typically you would be back to school and therefore it is September 15th. And so for us to be able to keep it open, once we open it, we need I don't know, we need an executive order or something that says with the situation we're in, with this virus that's going on, we need to change that and extend that. So organizations like us, it's not unique to us. YMCA is running into the exact same problem. So this is where I need you to pray that God would move. And uh, we're shooting for August 30th and uh, we hope that everything will be in place, all these red tape and paperwork and stuff we have to go through. But keep praying, pray harder than ever. Uh, We're also thinking of some alternatives if for some reason they don't allow it to happen that is still gonna come alongside of parents and help them through this time. So I just wanted to give you that update. Now we're in the third week of our series, Origin Story, and we finally have come to the book of Ezra. And I say finally because you know if you were here the last couple of weeks, we've looked at 1 Kings, we've looked at 2 Kings. These are dark books, heavy books, depressing uh, books. There's a lot of, uh, there's just a lot of doom. There's just a, a lot of gloom in this book. But this week, when we get to book, the book of Ezra, it's like we turn the corner. And all of this heaviness and this darkness that we've been seeing in First and Second Kings, all of a sudden we're starting to be reminded of the mercy of God and the grace of God and the love of God and the patience of God. We're going to begin to see that in the book of Ezra. But I want to begin this weekend by saying this. <clears throat> in every great movement, there are always great people. That's so profound. Let me say it again. Okay. In every great movement, there are always great people. But within the context of those great people, you're always going to find two different types of groups, two different types of individuals. First of all, there's upfront people. They're the visionaries. They're the motivators, the cheerleaders, the ones who can stand up in front of a crowd and motivate them to do great things. Then there's always a second group, and it's the people who work behind the scenes. And they're often quiet. Many times they're analytical. 
but they work through the nuts and bolts. They take care of all the details behind the scene and they rarely get the glory. By the way, let me say when it comes to the virtual learning centers, those are the kind of people that we have at Hope Community Church. They're behind the scenes. They're working like I've never seen them work before. You will probably never see them. They will probably never get the glory, but I gotta tell you, they're just as important as the leader. They're just as important as the person who comes up with the vision. But I say that because when we look at Ezra this weekend, I'm gonna go ahead and tell you, he is one of those behind the scene kind of leaders. And he was a leader, I think, during one of the most vulnerable times in the history of the Jews. And if you haven't heard of Ezra, it doesn't surprise me that you, you don't know his story because that's just the way it is when you're in the background. See, the credit used to, usually goes to the Nehemiah. We'll look at Nehemiah next week. Or it goes to Moses, or it goes to Abraham, or it goes to David. Guys like Ezra, they don't get the spotlight, and, which is probably a good idea because they wouldn't know what to do with it anyway. But Ezra, I, in fact, when I was thinking through this book, I thought Ezra, he is like the Thomas Jefferson of the Bible when it comes to worship. He codified our system. He worked out the nuts and the bolts. He, he kind of clarified the essentials. And you're gonna see that as we talk about Ezra this weekend. But to really appreciate Ezra, you have to understand his times. And it's a little complicated. And to understand his times, we have to review a little bit of where we've been over the last couple of weeks in First and Second Kings. But I wanna do it by looking at Second Chronicles, which I, tell you, I told you, it's kind of a parallel book of what's going on in First and Second Kings. But it lets us know where we are in the story. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15, it says, the Lord, the God of their ancestors, again, this is the nation of Israel, sent word to them, to the people of Israel, through his messengers. Now we know now that that's the prophets. And he sent word to them again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. Now, what does that mean? It means that God is looking down on the nation of Israel and he sees their rebellion. He sees their disobedience. He sees their tendency toward evil. He sees all of this, but out of a heart of compassion, he just continues to pour out his patience. He continues to pour out his grace. He continues to pour out his mercy. And he does that for 350 years. He continues to encourage them to become obedient, to begin to color within the lines, to line their lives up with his law. He goes on for 350 years, but you know if you were here the last couple of weeks, they refused to do that. They just would not listen. So it says in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 16, they mocked God's messengers. <clears throat> they despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. That just simply means there finally came a time when God said, I've had it, this can't go on any longer. The only thing that's gonna fix you guys is if I put you in timeout for a while. So you read in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 17, he brought up against them the king of the Babylonians. We now know it's Nebuchadnezzar. We know that the date is 586 B.C who killed their young men with a sword in the sanctuary and did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, the treasures of the Lord's temple, the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple. They broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palace and destroyed everything of value there. So this beautiful temple that Solomon built, that he planned, that was brought into existence, it was destroyed. Not only that, Jerusalem is literally reduced to a pile of ashes. ashes. There's mass extermination of innocent men, mass extermination of innocent women, innocent children, and those that weren't killed, they were taken away to Babylon. 
And this is a period of time that's known in, known in the Jewish history or Hebrew history as the period of Babylonian captivity. It's a period that lasted seven years, but, but, but during this 70 year period of time, the Jews had hope that one day it was going to end. And it's because of something that the prophet Jeremiah had written. Jeremiah 29 verse one, let me show it to you. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Chapter 29 of Jeremiah verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. In other words, I will bring you back to Jerusalem. So God basically says this through Jeremiah. After you have been in captivity for 70 years, after you have finally learned your lesson, God says there's gonna be a second exodus. And you're gonna go back to the land just as your forefathers left Egypt and made their way to the land of Canaan. You're actually gonna leave Babylon after 70 years and you're gonna make that 800 mile trek back home. Now, why would God make that promise? Well, it's interesting. The reason is also found in Jeremiah 29, and you're gonna see the context of what is probably one of our favorite verses in all the Bible. Jeremiah 29, verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then, look at this, then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. Now notice this, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. In other words, while you're in captivity, you're gonna get to the place where your number one passion, your number one objective is to know me. And as a result of you finally getting there, God says, I'm gonna bring you back home. Now, let me just give you a little history. During the reign of the Babylonian kings, there was no hope whatsoever of the Jews ever returning home to Jerusalem. But then something interesting happens. Persia attacks Babylon. Babylon falls to Persia. History gets a little bit complicated. If you don't like history, probably a little bit boring, but all of a sudden the Bible, once again, is proven to be right and to be accurate. And for some reason, and you can interject there, God, okay? For some reason, Cyrus, the king of Persia, he looks with favor on the Jews. So after he conquers Babylon, he's got this nation of Jewish people that have been captive for 70 years. And he's like, I don't know what to do with them. I don't really want them. And so he decides that he's going to let them go home. Now let me show you, 2 Chronicles 36, verse 22. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, because he was such a great guy, no. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. In other words, because it was his plan, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it in writing. Remember what I said, Proverbs 22, one, the hearts of kings are like rivers of water. God directs them wherever he wants but to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to also put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia says. Look at this. The Lord, the God of heaven. Now understand, this is a proclamation made by a king who doesn't believe in the God of heaven, who doesn't have faith in the God of the Israelites. 
The Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me, look at this, to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Again, this is an evil king. And notice what he says. Any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord, their God, not my God, not our God, but may the Lord, their God be with them. Now, I cannot stress this enough. This is coming from a pagan king. But God moved in the heart of this pagan lost king. And he decided, I'm going to send those people home where they belong. And not only that, I am going to build them a temple and I am going to foot the bill. Now, can you imagine in Persia the celebration that broke out among the Jews when they realized that they had been freed, they had been emancipated? When I was a young pastor, I had a mentor. He was one of my board members. His name was Lenny Moen. And if you've been around Hope for a while, you've heard me refer to him. In fact, I interviewed him one time and I used parts of his story throughout a series I did in the book of James. But one of the things that made Lenny such an interesting character, he was a World War II bomber pilot that crashed over Germany. And he became a prisoner of war in Stalag 17. Now, if that sounds familiar and you're old enough, it's because that was the setting for the great old movie, The Great Escape, Stalag 17. And he was a prisoner of war in Stalag 17 for two years. And he was there the day that the war ended. And I remember him telling how, you know, he said that we could tell something was happening because we could tell the bombing was getting close to where we were and we could tell they were the Allied planes. So we weren't surprised, but we were so excited when the Allied troops pulled up to the gates of this prisoner of war camp and put the gates open and said, it's over, you're free. And I said, Lenny, what was it like? He said, mass chaos. He said, all the soldiers just took off. I said, to where? Anywhere trying to get back to France, trying to find a friendly truth, trying to figure out a way to get back home to America. But they just took off and it was absolute chaos. It, they, they were emancipated, they were free. In the same way for the Jews, it was a day of celebration. It was a day of rejoicing, but unlike in World War II, the people didn't just go crazy and start making their way along that 800 mile trek back to Jerusalem. In fact, they returned in three waves under three different leaders over, think about this, a 95-year period of time, which tells me Persia must not have been that bad, right? But it took 95 years for them all to get back to Jerusalem. The first group went back under the leadership of a guy named, my favorite name in the Bible, Zerubbabel. <laughs> say it, Zerubbabel. Doesn't it feel good just to say it? Say it one more time, say it at home, Zerubbabel, right? I will give $100. I know there's a lot of pregnancies taking place, okay, during COVID-19. I will give $100 to the first couple that names their son Zerubbabel Michael, you fill in the blank. I don't care, okay, $100. But so, so Zerubbabel goes back and Zerubbabel goes back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. The second group follows, think about this, about 80 years later, and they go with our guy Ezra. And now they go back to establish worship. The third group leaves about 12 years later under Nehemiah. We'll look at Nehemiah next week. And they go back under Nehemiah to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. So in a, in a span of time, a period of time that covers about 95 years, there were three exoduses as the people made their way from Persia, that 800 mile journey back to the land of Judah. Now, if you were just reading through Ezra, you would, get, you would see that in chapters one through six, 
The main focus is the construction of the temple. Uh, the leader is Zerubbabel. Uh, he actually leads about 50,000 people from Persia back to Jerusalem. And we know that because if you want some really good, boring reading, Exodus chapter two, there's actually a census and you can add it all up and it comes to just under 50,000 people. So he leads them back to rebuild the temple. It was very, very important to them. Now we know in our day, our focus of worship isn't a building. Our focus of worship is Jesus. And if we've ever learned that, we've learned it during COVID-19. We've certainly learned this lesson. Hey, listen, we don't have to be at church to be the church. We have beat that slogan together to death, right? But I will tell you something I've learned during this time. We may not have to be at church together to be the church, but we are certainly better together. And we're better together because that's actually the way God designed it. See, there's an interesting verse tucked away in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. It says, hey, don't neglect your meeting together. Don't neglect that as a congregation of my followers of getting together. I have a friend, he's a pastor in another state, but he posted this quote by a guy named Ted Cunningham. This is what it says. Church on demand has lulled many into thinking that podcasts and sermons are enough for one's faith. The church is far more than that. The church is about gathering, serving, giving, worshiping, sharing, rejoicing, mourning, confessing, and growing with others. And you know that. And that's why some of you are gathered. That's why when everything kind of calms down, maybe there's a vaccine, we'll all be back together again because we've all been in those services. See, it's one thing when God shows up in your life as an individual, but when you gather corporately and God shows up and his spirit sweeps over this place and you walk out and realize, wow, something just happened and you feel invincible. And I think maybe one of the reasons we're struggling so much with insecurity and fear right now is because we're not having that sense that God has shown up in our midst and he's done something that has absolutely blown our minds. And we're doing everything we can to move in that direction and to do it safely and we will get there one day. And we'll continue to provide the online services until we get there, but I'm telling you, we are better when we are together. But in this day, a building was important because God says, that's where I dwell. So think about this, when the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC in Jerusalem, there was this sense of the loss of the presence of God. And so these people, they wanna get back and they wanna rebuild the temple so that the presence of God will rest there again. It's their number one priority. And so in the first few chapters, against great odds, they rebuild the temple. And finally, the temple is complete, but now they need a system of worship. And that's where Ezra came in. In chapter seven, we pick up the story of Ezra himself. And in chapter seven, this is interesting. There's something said about Ezra three times in Ezra chapter seven that is seldom said of anybody else in the entire Bible one time. Let me show it to you. Ezra chapter seven, verse six. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel had given. The king had granted him everything he asked. Notice this phrase for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Verse nine, he had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. So it took him four months to make the 800 mile journey. But look what it says, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. Verse 27, praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way 
who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials because the hand of the Lord my God was on me. So three times in chapter seven, we read that the hand of God was on Ezra. Why? Why Ezra? He wasn't charismatic. You wouldn't have considered him a superstar. He certainly no Joel Osteen. I'll tell you that right now, right? So why, what made Ezra so unique? Let me show you the secret to his success. It's in Ezra chapter seven, verse 10. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Notice what it says, that phrase, he devoted himself. The Hebrew word that's translated here, devoted in our English version, it means to set your heart, to be firm, to direct, to arrange something. It's this idea that you take something in your life and you make it a top priority. It means that he set his heart toward something. He made it his passion. He made it his determined objective. Which brings up a question. What is your objective in life? You ever thought about that? Most of us don't even think, well, I mean, what is my objective in life? What, what, what is that top priority in my life? What am I setting my heart toward? And when people ask us a question like that, if we haven't thought about it, we might say, well, financial security, you know? I, I, I wanna be famous, or I wanna start a family, or maybe I wanna be in a position of power. And see, that's an important question to ask, because see, if you're lucky, if you're lucky, you'll live 70 years, maybe 80, 90, maybe 100, and then you'll be gone. And even if you get 100, I mean, think about it, even if you get 100, James says in the big scheme of things, it's like a vapor, it's there, it's just gone. It's just gone. So let's say you get 70, 80, 90 years. What's gonna be your contribution? What's gonna be your legacy? I mean, what are you setting your heart on? I'm telling you, that is a big, big question. And if you've never answered that question, you need to answer that question because the sooner you know the answer to that question, the more enjoyable and the more fulfilling and the more satisfying and the more rewarding your life is going to be. George Wilhelm Frederick Hegel said this, life has value only when it has something as its object. In other words, you're not gonna find that value when you're just kind of coasting through life, just going with the flow. Robert Browning says this, who keeps one end in view, in other words, that is your objective, that's your goal, makes all other things serve. In other words, that's your goal. Everything else in your life lines up to make that goal, that objective a reality. Dwight Pentecost said this, when you determine what you want, you have made the most important decision in your life. So what is it you really want? Let's see, what would you say is my number one objective in life? See, some of you don't know the answer to that question. You know what? It explains why some of you are so restless. I mean, some of you are 40, maybe 50 years old. <laughs> you still don't know what your number one passion is in life. You don't know what your number one purpose and objective is in life. You thought if you got your education, maybe your master's, that would be it. Or you got married and you would have kids, or that would be it. Or if you made enough money where you're gonna live comfortably, that would be it. Two weekends ago, I spent the weekend with a guy who in just a few years says, if everything continues to go well, I will be worth a half billion dollars. That's with the B. 
and we were talking and he's a Christian. He says, but this is what's interesting, Mike. You can have all the money in the world. And he said, I'm not going to tell you that money doesn't help, but you'll still have marriage issues. You'll still have issues with your kids. You'll still have work issues. You'll still have relationship issues. And what he was saying is what the great theologian Mick Jagger said. I can't get no satisfaction, right? I can't get no satisfaction. No matter how much money, that will not bring you satisfaction. See, we don't believe that. We're like, well, at least let me try and figure it out on my own, right? But see, that's not original with him. I mean, go back to Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, the wealthiest man, probably, who's ever lived, who could do anything he wanted any time he wanted to do it. And when he wrote his journal, the book of Ecclesiastes, he said, you know what? It's like chasing the wind, soap bubbles. You think it's gonna satisfy, it brings you nothing. And so finally, when you get to the end of his journal, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, this is what he says. Here's my advice to you. After I've spent my whole life pursuing things that will not satisfy, here's my advice. He said, remember your creator in the days of your youth. In other words, early on in life, determine what your number one objective is in life. And I would just challenge you, if you haven't gotten there, your prayer should be, God, set my heart on the thing that you have for me. That's what I want. That's what I know is gonna bring me ultimate fulfillment. God, set my heart on the thing you have for me. Give me a passion, God, for the plan you have for my life. Not the plan you have for Joe's life or Bill's life or Sally's life. Give me a passion, God, for the plan that you have for my life. But notice what Ezra's objectives were. First, it was to study the law of God. It says in chapter seven, verse 10, he devoted himself to the study of the law of the Lord. It's interesting, this word translated study from the Hebrew means to seek, to resort to, to consult, to inquire. It was even used in the Old Testament to describe someone who read something over and over repeatedly. In other words, Ezra decided that he was going to become a student of the word of God. He determined that he was to discover what it says and what it means. Here was his second objective, to teach the law of God. Let me tell you something about Ezra. When you went to Ezra for advice, when you went to Ezra to get counsel or wisdom, I'm telling you, you knew that you were getting biblical counsel. It was his guide. And then third objective, to observe the law of God. In other words, he was content just knowing it, maybe even being able to quote it. He wanted to know, how can I live it out? How can I apply it? How does it change my life? And you gotta understand, that's the key. I don't care how often you come to church. I don't care how much you can quote the Bible. I don't care how much of the Bible you've read. If you're missing that ingredient of applying it, your life is going to fall flat. In fact, if you just study the Bible without applying it, you'll become arrogant, you'll become conceited and harsh, unapproachable. You will become an obnoxious Bible scholar. And every one of us knows somebody like that. And we avoid them like the plague. See? But Ezra, he set his heart on studying and practicing what he learned. In other words, he kept asking, what does this mean to me? Okay, how do I apply this truth? I'm telling you, that is the goal of studying the Bible. It's not just so you'll have more knowledge so you can show off your Bible trivia in your small group. Right? It, it's to have your life changed. I'm telling you, God did not give us the Bible to satisfy our, our intellectual curiosity. 
He gave us the Bible to change our lives. He gave us the Bible to impact our home, to alter the way we run our business, to impact our relationships that we have with one another. He gave us the Bible so that we would be able to understand how you navigate something like COVID-19. I mean, at the end of the day, he gave us the Bible so we could figure out how to be like Jesus. That's why God gave us the Bible. And Ezra set his heart to study so he could learn it, so he could practice it, but there was one more key ingredient so he could share it with others. Did that actually happen? Well, let me show you something. Ezra chapter nine, verse one. It says, after these things had been done, the leaders came to me, this is Ezra speaking, and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring people with their detestable practices. Oh no, here we go again. Like the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, the Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters. Oh man, same song, second verse, right? They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons have mingled their holy race with the people around them. They came to Ezra and basically said, we got them marrying heathens again. And they're bringing their gods along with them. And Ezra's like, well, that's not right. I mean, isn't that what got us in this mess to start with? Isn't this why we ended up 70 years captive in Babylon to start with? So notice what it says in Ezra 9 verse 3. When I heard this, this is his way of, uh, of mourning. I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head, bragger, okay, pulled hair from my head and beard, and now notice it, and sat down, look at the word, appalled. In other words, he was moved, he was appalled over this compromising situation. He was appalled over the disobedience and the sin of people. Now I want to ask you a question, and only you can answer this. When's the last time you were appalled because of something that was going on in our culture? When's the last time that the Supreme Court passed down a ruling that was so 180 degree opposite to the Word of God and its truth and what it teaches that you were literally appalled? Do you know how most Christians respond today? Well, you know, it's just a sign of the times. Or that's the way it is. Or I was having a conversation with somebody one day and they said, well, you know, Mike, you just gotta love them where they are. And that's true. And we love people where they are because see, that's how God loved us. He loved us where we were. He loved us when we weren't very lovable. And so now we go out and we love people where they are. But see, what is the rest of it? See, God loved us, but he didn't want us to stay the way we were. He wanted us to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, so we could experience the abundant life and all that comes with it. In the same way, I hope community church, we love people where they are, but we don't want them to stay where they are in their sin and their disobedience. We want their lives to become like Jesus so that they can experience the abundant life that Jesus came and gave his life to provide. But here's the problem. Nothing appalls us anymore. And I'll just tell you, it's probably the number one reason that the church of Jesus Christ has lost its influence in our world. You can't be salt and light if you can't differentiate between light and dark. And if you're not appalled by darkness, you're not gonna ever be able to bring light into a situation. Now, you don't have to be rude about it. You don't have to be obnoxious about it. But you ought to be appalled by what's going on 
around us. And so look what it says. Ezra, he's a Paul, so he comes up with a plan. Ezra chapter 10, verse 10. Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women. Again, God's not a bigot. He, God just knew they would bring their foreign gods with them. It's just the same thing they keep going through. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people around you and from your foreign wives. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice, you are right. You are right. We must do as you say. But my point is he went to the people, he held them accountable, he called disobedience, disobedience, he called sin, sin, and he basically said, we're never gonna have the lives that God designed for us to have until we bring our lives into obedience. But it doesn't stop there. Eventually, 12 years later, Nehemiah shows up and he builds the wall. Well, everything in the Old Testament, if you build something right, you gotta dedicate it, right? So who do they call when it's time to dedicate the wall? They call Ezra. And look what it says in Nehemiah chapter eight, verse one. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. This is part of the wall. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform. Imagine this scene, built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood, and there's a group of guys listed in verse four. These are young men that Ezra has impacted. These are young men that he's discipled, that he's, that he's mentored. In fact, they're like his disciples. And he's trained them because he's gonna give the word and their job is to filter out into the crowd and help the people understand the word of God, how to apply it to their lives. So look what it says in Nehemiah chapter eight, verse five. Ezra opened the book as all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning, in other words, how to apply it, so that the people understood what was being read. So these guys, they filtered out among the crowd. You gotta remember, these are Jews that have been under Babylonian and Persian, Persian influence for well over 70 years now. But when they heard the word of God explained to them in their language, it exploded in their minds. And that should never shock us. Because I will tell you, the teaching of God's word, the Bible, always changes people as it touches their lives. I want to wrap this up by going back to the question. Whether you're watching, whether you're here, what is your objective in life? For some of you, if you were honest, you would say it, it is to get rich. For some of you would say, hey, I, I want to get married. For some of you would, you know, I, I want to travel the world. You know, some of you, you just want to go back to Walmart without a mask on. But, you know, that's kind of your objective right now. But you know what, for some of you, I believe this. It is to become a student of God's word. Reading it through. Thinking on it, meditating on it, comparing passage with passage, book with book, cross-referencing. And I'm telling you, as you become a study student of the Bible, you will be in demand in our culture. You'll be in demand in your neighborhood, among your family and friends, on your campus. You'll be in demand even among strangers. And your vision of God is just going to grow and grow and it's just going to get greater and greater. Apparently, Robert Wilson was that kind of guy. 
student of God's word, the early days of Princeton Seminary. And there was a time when Princeton had a rock solid theological seminary. And one of the young men that went through the seminary that was impacted by Wilson was a man by the name of Donald Barnhouse. You may have heard of him, he's a phenomenal theologian. In one of his books, Barnhouse tells a story of, of going back to Princeton after he had graduated. He had been invited to come back and speak in chapel. And, and as he's speaking, he looks out and in the very back of the auditorium, he, knows, he notices Mr. Wilson, his professor. And his head is down, his eyes are closed, his chin is, but Barnhouse could tell he was listening. And when your mentor is listening, of course, Barnhouse wondered, what's he think? I get that. I remember one time when Laura and I were first married, we were at church and the guy was preaching and about halfway through, Laura opened her purse and started going through it and reorganizing it. And I'm like, what, what are you doing? She said, I'm sorry, when I get bored, I start reorganizing my purse. So whenever she's here, I keep an eye on her. If she pulls the purse out, shut it down, baby, it's over. You know what I'm saying? So he's sitting there speaking and he's wondering, what is he thinking about what I'm saying? Chapel ended, he thought he would run into the professor, his mentor, he never saw him. But a few weeks later, he got this letter. My dear Donald, I always make it a practice when seminarians return to speak at chapel to hear them. I only want to determine one thing and one thing only. Are they little godders or are they big godders? Often my heart is broken but I could tell when I listened to you speak, your God is big. I'm gonna tell you something. We live in a dark world right now. And there are people who are just longing to rub shoulders with somebody who has a big God. I'll just tell you, if you listen to the world around you, God will reduce in size. If you listen to the news and what they tell you, God is gonna reduce in size. But you know what, instead of spending your time there, if you spend time in God's word, his voice is gonna become louder and it's gonna become larger than any voice around you. It's gonna change your life. So I would just challenge you, get into this book. Do you feel like you're fearful right now? Uncertain, just get into this book. Become an Ezra, set your heart on it. And all of a sudden, things that seem so important to our world seem so minimal. I got an incredible email yesterday where somebody just tore me apart about politics and that I made a statement that you, you don't vote on people, you vote on principles, principles. Because the reality is anybody gets elected to any office just by the fact that they're human is fallible and broken. But biblical principles never change. Now that's not a political statement. That's just actually biblical wisdom. And so when I think about who might get elected, I vote, I do my part. But at the end of the day, I believe that just like with Cyrus, the king of Persia, God is gonna put who he wants, where he wants them, for whatever reason he wants them there. And you know what that allows me to do? Go to bed with incredible peace. Because when you stay in God's word, 
He's a big God. Do it. Get into it. You will be like Ezra in your sphere of influence. Your God will be huge and you will be used by God as a light to make a difference in people's lives and in our culture. And you know what? We could use some light right now. We could use that. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us uh, unconditionally when we didn't deserve it. But we thank you that your desire wasn't just to leave us in that broken state, aimlessly wandering, but you had a plan. You had a plan. And you gave us a roadmap. It's called, it's called your word, the Bible. And Father, as we study this book and as we learn this book, but more importantly, as we apply this book, not only does it change our lives, it makes you larger. It makes you huge. And you're able to go through life with this sense that whatever happens in this life is just, it's just life. But I walk along with and serve the God of the universe. And so I'm gonna be okay. We live in a world right now, Father, where people are longing to come alongside someone like that and experience that kind of faith. May we get into your word. May our knowledge and love and understanding of who you are increase. And may our faith increase along with it. We're gonna give you the glory right now for what you're gonna do and what you have done. And we pray all of this in your blessed son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Hope Podcast. We appreciate you joining us as we tackle issues facing our modern world from a biblical perspective. To make sure you don't miss a podcast, please take a moment and hit the subscribe button. Also, if you're new to Hope and want to check out what we're about and how to be part of our community, go to our next steps at gethope.net slash next and let us know your story because we'd love to connect with you.